Welcome to the Psychology for Theology series. Theology is reflection on God and God's relationship to all things, but especially to human beings. Psychology is the scientific study of the thoughts, beliefs, and behaviors of those human beings. But usually these domains are siloed. Blueprint 1543 takes an integrated approach. Because in order to live full lives, solve big problems, and serve the culture, we'll need to draw on many different domains of knowledge. But as intellectual as some of this work is, we don't want these how, when, and why questions to feel disembodied and out there. We think this work matters because it actually makes a difference in people's lives, including yours. This is an eight-part series with a free downloadable workbook available in the show notes. We hope you enjoy. This project was made possible through the support of a grant from the John Templeton Foundation. The opinions expressed do not necessarily reflect the views of the John Templeton Foundation. I'm talking to Tyler Greenway. Uh, we're connected in a lot of ways through the Fuller ecosystem. Your dissertation advisor was Justin Barrett, our founder and president here at Blueprint 1543. And you've done a lot of work with the Fuller Youth Institute. So I just wondered if you could start to tell me the story of what lured you towards a psychology vocation, because I know you were on a path towards an MDiv first, so it seems like ministry might have been plan A. So if you could just tell me what factors indicated that psychology might be your path. Yeah, absolutely. And lured is a great word to use to describe that journey because it was not a linear path. So I was very much intending to go into a church ministry, a pastoral role of some sort. I was getting my Master of Divinity and was completing all the requirements and everything. And in my last year, I had some questions about faith formation. What works? What doesn't work? How are we shaped or changed or formed in church settings or ministry settings? So after a couple of conversations with different professors asking, do I need to take another class? Is this another books that I need to read or articles or whatever? And then I also said like, well, and if absolutely necessary, maybe consider another program. And one of my professors at Calvin University pointed me to this new program at Fuller Theological Seminary with Justin Barry and said, well, you should really consider this. And I kind of slowly considered and after taking the GRE, all these like first steps that eventually ended up in this program at Fuller Seminary. And I had a background in psychology and undergrad, so that kind of connected that way as well. But that's how I ended up in this program. Cool. Do you think some of those questions about faith formation, do those just come out of, you think, your, I don't know, like you as a person being a scientifically minded person and looking at empirical questions is kind of natural to you? And, or maybe it's a combination of both your own experience in church. Like, were you already involved in church ministry or youth ministry or anything like that? Yeah. So I was definitely involved in a lot of ministry activities. I was an intern at a church. So I was preaching, doing some pastoral care planning out worship services, those kinds of things. I think I also had this kind of curious research bent towards me. So I, I often think about these, a passion for ministry, but also the skills and another passion for research. And I'm grateful when those two worlds can kind of collide. And I think this was one of those instances where there was this program that offered opportunity to study psychology of religion, character and virtue development, how ministry impacts our lives and different ways. So yeah, using the sciences as a tool for ministry can be pretty powerful. I guess 
any good ministers just wondering how can I help people and how the heck do people change? Sometimes it almost seems random, the people that are able to like make a radical change or have the resiliency to face a situation or whatever. And sometimes folks like crumble and some people make it through. Figuring out some of the how and why to that is really appealing that some of the sciences offer some insight to to those complicated questions. Well, that's great. And you mentioned that you are starting a new journey with Sarah Schnitker. Who did you work with Sarah at Fuller as well? Yes. Yep. So at Fuller, she wasn't my formal doctoral advisor, but she oversaw a lot of the research that I was working on. I worked closely with her and the branch thing that you could develop. And really enjoyed working with her. And she had an opportunity at Baylor University. So now I'm going to continue working with her. She has like a bunch of grants, I feel like. <laughs> yes, yeah, a bunch of them. So we received questions from folks, some folks who went through Theopsych Academy, which is the online classes that Blueprint put together. We have a class on there called brains and embodiment. And there's a lot about spiritual practices in that class, particularly. So, but also some questions just came through people who follow us on social media. And yeah, the first area I wanted to approach was spiritual practices. Now, there has been some interest in like studies around the science of prayer. Um, there's tons of science on meditation practices. But maybe before we latch into the specific question that came up, what if a psychologist is going to study something spiritual, how would you define something as a spiritual practice? Quote, unquote. What do you know about how you might define a spiritual practice from a psychological perspective? Yeah, that's a great question. And there are different approaches to it. So I'll offer my approach, which I think is helpful, but I'm sure there's as many different definitions as there are scholars working on spiritual practices. So one of the things I appreciate about a field or a subdiscipline called the cognitive science of religion, which Justin Barrett is very much involved in, is the kind of piecemeal approach to different religious phenomena. And that's to say, we don't necessarily need to define all the boundaries of a religion. We're going to study all of these things that we think fit within the science of religion. And if someone wants to argue that doesn't fall into religion, well, okay, well, we're still studying something that was worth studying. So that's one approach. And honestly, I think that's a more helpful approach than many others. Often, another approach is to define any spiritual practice or any spiritual belief, if it has some kind of connection to a god or gods or some kind of connection to the transcendent, that's another way to define it as spiritual. Yeah. So what you're talking about is like the category of religion is something that can be hard to define. A system of belief that includes God, God concepts, rituals, not everything that we might think of as a religion checks all these boxes. They'll check a few of them or something. So it can be a very hard thing to define. But you're saying if you take it apart and you just look at an aspect of it, you're still studying something real, whether or not you've adequately come up with a definition that catches everything. And kind of the same thing for spirituality, right? Very much so. I, I don't usually get into too much of like where the line is on a spiritual practice. There's probably people who care a lot about that line. Philosophers. Philosophers, yes. And this is not to say that it's not important. I, I think it's probably really important aspects of it to study. It's not usually something that I'm terribly interested in diving deeply into in terms of like prayer is a spiritual practice, but meditation is not or something like that. Maybe I'm just an academic in that regard. Oh, no. But, yeah. <laughs> 
Not everybody can do everything. Let the philosophers figure out where the boundary lines are. As long as you know your boundary lines are when you're doing a particular research study, right? Like, oh, if I'm going to study how people experience God in prayer or whatever, then if someone says they had this experience while they're praying, right? Like that's what you're studying. A couple of questions I got had to do with how spiritual practices affect different people at different times and different circumstances. That could be circumstances like if you're solo or if you're in a group, if you're in church or if you're in your prayer closet. Or it could be if you have a certain personality type or maybe someone you like really hates singing in groups or <laughs> you're just introverted. So you feel like you're more drawn to solo practices or whatever the case might be. So did you have any thoughts about that or what has been your exposure to the research in this area? Great question. There's good reason to think that spiritual practices affect us differently, different settings or based on different personality types. There's good research addressing like different religious coping styles or lots of research addressing a variety of different spiritual practices. But from my perspective, this is one of those topics, the topic of spiritual practices, and how they affect us that's fairly understudied. If I can quote Justin Barrett, he would say there's a dissertation to be had there. And I think there are many dissertations to be had there studying these topics. So one of the projects that I did actually for my dissertation was studying prayer and how it affects something like generous behavior. My study was focused specifically on petitionary prayer. And we hypothesized that petitionary prayer would lead to more, more generous behavior than a control condition. We thought, okay, if someone's praying for this particular group, they'll give more to that group at the end of this experiment than someone non-religious or non-spiritual control condition. And what we found was that actually those in the prayer condition gave a little bit less. It wasn't a huge effect, but it went in the opposite of the direction that we were expecting. It's not to say that it doesn't have positive effects or anything like that. There's lots of research suggesting that prayer and other religious activities have plenty of positive effects. But it does point out that spiritual practices may not always have the effects we assume. Uh, so there's plenty of work to that research. That's interesting. That's really interesting. So do you hypothesize why? Yeah, absolutely. So what we asked people to do, we had two groups of people. There is the prayer condition, the control condition. So we randomized people into one of those two conditions. In the prayer condition, we sent them prompts six times over two weeks and said, please pray for this situation. There's terrible things happening to a particular group of people. Please pray for them. And we adjusted the prompts a little bit to keep people engaged over the six time periods. But they received the same kind of information about this group of people six times over two weeks. Was there details about the, what the situation was in particular? So it was a group of people who are being persecuted for their faith. And there was actually a second condition where it was Christians being persecuted for their faith and Muslims being persecuted. We didn't find any difference based on which group they were. And this was a real situation that was happening. There was real need for prayer. We asked them to pray six times and then asked them to record their prayers, like typing them out and stuff like that. So we have those, that information, which is interesting to read as well. Then in the control condition, we just ask them to journal about this particular situation. When you're recruiting people for this, were you like, are you a person who prays or doesn't pray? Because I would think finding a Christian and being like, can you just not pray for this? That was one of the problems is recruited. It was an entirely Christian sample. And when we asked people to journal in this control condition, 
And then at the end, we asked them, well, just so we know, did you pray? And sure enough, you ask a bunch of religious Christians to journal about something over two weeks, journal about a, a terrible situation that's happening. Turns out most of them prayed. So it's hard to quantify how much people prayed. Presumably the people in the prayer condition still prayed. Presumably the people in the control condition maybe prayed a little less, but it's hard to say who prayed more or more fervently, however you want to measure it. Yeah. Sure. I think of journaling as a spiritual practice. And I, for some folks it is. And something about that act of just writing something out does something to how your brain works through an issue. That's an interesting aspect as well. Mm -hmm. Once the period of prayer ended, you then gave them an opportunity to make a financial donation? Yep. We gave them an opportunity to donate part of their compensation to a charity that was serving the group that they had been praying for or just. And we found that those in the prayer condition gave just a little bit less. It was not a huge effect, but it was a small, statistically significant effect. Uh-huh, yeah. And this is where follow-up studies would be required. And we wondered is when we ask people to pray, we're asking them to do something for this. We're asking them to act. So they've had these opportunities all along. All six of these time periods over the two weeks, they've had opportunities to pray and do something for the group that's experiencing this persecution. For the journaling condition... We didn't really offer them an opportunity to do anything until the very end. And many of them did pray, we know from the follow-up, but we weren't asking them to do something all along the way. And then at the very end, we offered them this opportunity to donate to a charity. And sure enough, many of them gave a little bit more than the prayer condition. So we're curious to know if maybe that's why. It's because we offered the prayer condition something to do about the situation all along. And then in the control condition, they didn't really have an opportunity to help, they were at least more prompting them to do something to help until the very end. I think it's worth just emphasizing that what you're saying is not that like praying doesn't have any other positive things that it correlates to. And like you said, the negative correlation with generosity was slight and still has to be further studied because that's how science works. But it's really important to have that very specific thing you're looking at. You're not doing a study on prayer and everything it might correlate with health or longevity or hope or gratitude or anything like that. It's specifically petitionary prayer and generosity. For a good psychological experiment, you have to have those really specific parameters. And this is all against the backdrop of all kinds of other research that has said Prayer does correlate with all of these positive benefits, both psychological and physical, in terms of prayer is very typically positively correlated with all of these things. But in this specific experimental setting, a very small negative, a lot of people get in both conditions and no one needed to. So the baseline was no one needed to give up their compensation. A lot of people in both conditions gave. When I say negative effect, it just means they gave slightly less on average compared to the control. But both groups were exceptionally generous. I think in our class on embodiment, in, we have a section on spiritual practice work, and Kevin Ladd is one of the resources that we link to. I know he's done kind of some science of prayer research if other people are interested in doing a deep dive on prayer. Sarah Schn Schnitker is a social psychologist, is that correct? Mm -hmm. Would mm -hmm. you consider yourself a social psychologist? That's a good question. So I would probably say I am a psychologist of religion who was trained by a cognitive scientist of religion 
and a social psychologist were two of my primary training. So I'd probably say I'm a cognitive social scientist of religion, if I can stretch and piece everything together. Let's be very specific here. Okay, so why don't you tell the people what social psychology is, what that subset of psychology is or speaks to? Yep. So a kind of a broad general definition of social psychology would be the study of how we act, think, and feel around other people. And that can be the perceived presence of others or the actual presence of others. So explain that last part, that perceived versus actual. Yeah, there are interesting studies about if there's a camera on or something like that. That can offer similar effects as if someone's actually watching. That's one of those qualifiers you might add to a definition of social psychology that is not typically needed, but can be. (laughs) That's right. We also, you know, as human beings, it's called theory of mind, right? Where we think about what other people's thoughts about us. And we are always telling ourselves stories. So those are real experiences. (laughs) I remember learning, I think maybe, I think from Justin, about the studies where, speaking of generosity, if you have the kettle there by itself, people won't really donate too much. But if you have a person there standing next to the kettle of face, then people will be likely to be more generous. But even if there's like a drawing of eyes over the kettle, it actually has that effect too. Like people would be more generous, maybe not as generous as like a real life person. But just having that intuitive sense that someone's watching makes you more generous. <laughs> Is that, are you familiar with those? I think they've even done that with mirrors. So it's not even, it's a weird thing because it's not, it's you. It's not other people, but you have this kind of perception that somebody's watching and it's you. And maybe that's self-awareness. Maybe that's less the perception of others. And I think mirrors work in that way as well. That's so funny. super interesting. It is super interesting. We do just like behave a little better if we feel like we're being watched. So with your work with Fuller Youth Institute, some of the social psychology stuff, must have come into play. And we got a couple questions about what do you think social psychology, this is pretty broad, so we can take it whatever direction you want, but what are some things that today's social psychologists might wish their church knew? How can we learn from what's being observed about people and how they interact socially? Because that's what a church community is. It's a social group, right? That might be helpful to know and might help us deal with some of the problems and issues that we deal with. Yeah. Now, this is a super big question because as you named, like churches are full of people and social psychology studies, how we interact with groups of people. And when it's good, it's like great, right? Like a healthy community can do wonders for your psychological health, physical health, all sorts of things. But when it's bad or when there's like an unhealthy community or there's abuse in a community, it's really bad and very devastating. Yeah, absolutely. All of the psychological dynamics of groups come into play. And you have the added layer of religious communities, which bring in other dynamics as well. Two things came to mind when I was thinking about this question in particular. And one of them is the social psychological study of virtue development. And this pulls from a variety of disciplines as well. But one of the things we're studying at the Fuller Youth Institute is we call it the Kirkham Virtue Development and Youth Ministry Project, which we abbreviate CVDYM. But the project is focused on there is so much good work that's been done in psychological and social psychological circles. A lot of people have devoted their entire lives to developing these great practices that help you develop virtues, that help you grow in forgiveness or hope or humility, keeps all of these things. And sadly, 
oftentimes they don't end up in ministry settings, particularly youth ministry settings. And it's an unfortunate irony in the sense that most Christian churches are pro-virtue, right? Like we're all pro-forgiveness, pro-patience, peace, etc. Those are built into the Christian tradition. But there's this gap between good, solid psychological work that's helped develop practices that we have tested and we know will help you grow in forgiveness or something. And a gap then between actual ministry practice. So this project has been devoted to translating and bringing some of this good work into ministry settings. And this is not to fault ministers or pastors or youth ministers by any means, because most of the times the good psychological work that's been done is in a very academic general article. And most of us don't read academic journal before we're looking for resources. Yeah. So you're trying to bridge that divide. Yeah. So helping youth ministry leaders contextualize and implement some of those interventions that help young people grow. Can we talk about some of those, some couple examples of what those might be? Yeah, so one of the best examples is a forgiveness intervention that was developed by Everett Worthington, who has an astoundingly long CV where he's been studying uh, a lot of things. One of the primary things he's been studying is forgiveness. He's developed this intervention called the REACH intervention. And so REACH is R-E-A-C-H. It's an abbreviation for um, you recall the hurt that's happened. You empathize with the person who's hurt you. You recognize that what you're going to get forgiveness is an altruistic gift. And then C, you commit to it. And then H, you hold on to that forgiveness. So there's more to it. But that five-step intervention helps you grow in forgiveness. It helps it develop into a pattern such that you can offer forgiveness more readily or offer forgiveness to someone that you've been struggling to forgive. And there's a lot of work that needs to go into contextualizing that in terms of talking about why forgiveness is important for us and for other people. Also, how forgiveness has been misused or abused. Because sometimes in the church, we've said, you need to forgive this person and haven't recognized the hurt that's actually happened or dealt with the person who's done the hurt. And it just seems like we're forcing forgiveness on someone who's that big. So there's a lot of contextualization that needs to happen there, but it's been a really great project to help bridge that gap between psychology and history. These practical things that can help you enact something that's supposed to be very important Christian virtue, like the teachings of Jesus, right? Loving our enemy and forgiveness. And so bringing the tools of science alongside to help us make that a reality. In the next hopefully six months to a year, there'll be a lot more that are coming out from the Fuller Youth Institute. So if you're interested, follow the Fuller Youth Institute and you'll see more resources. I'll link to that in the show notes. From our Theosec seminars, we have the class on positive psychology that contains some lectures from Lindsay Root Luna at Hope College. Robert Edmonds, obviously, is a big name in gratitude and how to cultivate gratitude in your life. I wonder if you have anything to riff, Tyler, on from my own tradition, there was a push towards not trying to not be legalistic, not trying to force works on people. And so what you were supposed to do was just really focus on good theology, which was reformed where I grew up. And just really thinking about the gospel was supposed to just transform you and the better you understood theology kind of helped you understand the gospel or whatever. I wonder if you have any thoughts on someone who's coming from that church background that is like, if we just 
think about what God did for us, what grace is, that will be automatically transformative. And that should be all we need. Yeah, I love that question. Um, <laughs> and that was the other thing I was hoping to talk about. So that's a great segue. I think that's one of those things that can be a problem in a variety of different traditions in different ways, in the sense that we focus on one particular aspect of ourselves. And you can say of our minds or our souls or our personality, whichever way you want to put it, but we'll say, okay, form this and everything else will change from there. And that's true to a degree in the sense that different parts of our minds, our personality do influence the other, but we can just focus on one thing and that can be a detriment to other aspects of ourselves. So there's a scholar at Point Loma University by the name of Michael Leffel. And when I was in grad school, I came across this model of spiritual transformation that's really impacted my thinking. And what he does is he says, okay, rather than just thinking about ourselves as one thing, as a single mind or a single personality characteristic, if we parse things out and recognize that there are different parts of our minds or different parts of our personality that can be shaped in different ways, that can be a really helpful way to think about formation, a particularly spiritual transformation. So what he does is he breaks things down into eight different domains of personality. And he says there are, there's intuitions, there's emotions, there's virtues, vices, there's values, there's reasoning, there's a will, and there's also like a larger identity. And it's interesting to think about how different traditions might focus on one or two of those things, but might neglect other parts of those things. So you can imagine a ministry that's primarily characterized by preaching and teaching and reading and memorization, kind of what you described. And that might lead to a really well-developed like identity or worldview and really strong values, but may fail to form some other dimension, like emotions or intuition. Other ministries, though, might really strongly emphasize something like apologetics, defense of the faith, like the reasoning aspect of faith. And as a result, people have really strong reasoning abilities, but it's possible that other aspects or other domains of personality might be collected. And you can still imagine a ministry that largely focuses on experiences of worship. And that might form something like your emotions, but it might miss important qualities like reason or substance. This isn't to say that his model is perfect. I'm sure there's things that could be collapsed or added, but I do think it's a really helpful way to think about different parts of ourselves that are being formed by different practices. And I've wondered about ministries using something like this as a rubric to say, how are we forming people? Are we just focusing on particular aspects of the self? And are there other aspects of the self that we need to focus on more or make sure we include in what ministry activities can we include such that we can make sure we're shaping those intuitions, its emotions, its virtues, etc. Yeah, that's a helpful paradigm. And I like it because it's positive. It's it starts with a strength, right? Like, oh, this is what we're good at. <laughs> and this is what we might be weaker at. I think uh there's good evidence to show that being strong in one area does not mean you're necessarily good in all the areas. And it doesn't work like a domino effect. So you really do have to approach things from various angles if you want to be more holistic in your ministry. If you have that paradigm, what sort of things might you think through? I guess it depends what they want to get better at. Maybe you could just speak personally. What has helped you grow in your philosophy of ministry or 
I think one thing can just be like writing down these different domains of personality and say, which of these are reformed? Which of these are not? But also asking, and if you don't want to take this personality theory and bring it into ministry, you can just ask the more specific questions and say, okay, when we think about the ministry activities that our young people are walking through or the ministry activities that our children are walking through or older generations or parents, whenever, any different group and just say, okay, how are we forming? Is it just on Sunday morning for a 45 minute sermon where we're trying to hold their attention with three songs, offering, and then they're done? What's being formed in those moments? And there are certainly things that are going to be formed. That's not to, that's not to diminish the work that's being done there. But what other activities do you need to And I think in many ways, a lot of pastors and ministry leaders react to this intuitively when they notice this isn't all the formation we want. So how can we plug people into small groups? How can we get them involved where there's going to be this tighter knit community that's going to shape them in different ways? That's why we have Bible studies or house gatherings or other types of you know, life groups and things are called, but while there's kind of smaller gatherings that are going to form people at different things. So I think just defining what do we mean by formation mm-hmm. and how are we forming people? What do we mean by discipleship and how does that change people? Having those clear definitions and clear outcome, like desired outcomes. What are the, the five different ways you want people to be formed, the, the results you want to see? Well, too nitty gritty here, but how do you want people to be changed? I talked to Pam King yesterday. So we were talking all about telos, right? And being explicit about goals never hurts, I find. You go along and you think like, oh, our goals are just implicit, but that's not the case. Usually a lot of times people have different ideas about what you're trying to do. And then you say the goal out loud and you're like, wait, should that be the goal? Something that maybe non-controversial would be like to form people into the image of Christ, like to help people be more Christ-like. If that's what you're trying to do in your church, what does that mean? What would it look like for everyone to be more Christ-like? And getting specific about that and then thinking about what sort of activities would help towards those goals. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Is there anything else in the realm of social psychology you wanted to share that we didn't get to? Yeah. One other thing when it comes to like group dynamics that I thought about. So many of us have probably experienced churches can have a lot of meat and not a bad thing. Meetings are great. Especially Presbyterians. <laughs> yes. Yep. 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 Gather sub teams and sub teams. One of the things that I'm often curious about when I'm in meetings and because of different studies in social psychology is, is something called groupthink. And groupthink is this tendency for us to think alike groups. You've probably had this experience where you walk into a meeting with a particular opinion and maybe your opinion has softened as the meeting goes along or changed entirely. That can be the result of something called groupthink, which is this tendency for us to just converge in a group. There are some causes that can make groupthink more likely. This is particularly common if the groups like really tight-knit, cohesive, unified, there's this desire to stay cohesive, that it may be unified, we all get drawn in that direction. If you have a really popular leader, it's more likely. And if you have a really high opinion of yourselves as a group, it's more likely. In those types of situations, people's opinions tend to become more alike. And then divergent opinions or new ideas might get lost. And often this is probably not a big deal in the sense that we arrive at some kind of unified decision, but it can be a problematic thing 
if there's this new information or a, a different perspective that really does need to be considered, either because we're missing something or we need to think through things like contingency plan. What if this happens? Then we need to those kinds of things. Group think can be problematic in that it might inhibit us considering those different perspectives and planning at accordingly. So there's different ways to combat groupthink. One of those ways is just making sure that there are different opinions in the group. So making sure you have people representing different groups in your church in the room. And it's not just all one group of people who all think the same. Because then, sure enough, then I end up with opinions or decisions that just reflect those people. So make sure there's different opinions in the group and make sure that if people are invited into that group, they have the opportunity to speak. Also just seeking outside opinions, so testing out those ideas. So let's say you all make a decision as a group, test out those ideas with different groups in the church or test them out with outside consultants. You're essentially doing research at that point. And saying, here's our theory about what we should do next. Let's test this out. Oh, we bring this to young people. Terrible idea. They did not like that idea. They pointed out all kinds of problems we were going to run into. It's a good thing to test those things out. You can also create subgroups, divide the room into four different parts, ask people to make decisions, come together. And if there are four different decisions that emerge, it's good to know that people are in different spots uh, when you divide them up. And then also asking for anonymous feedback. That can be really helpful too, in the sense that if I have a divergent opinion about something, if I know that my name's not going to be attached to it, I might be more willing to express that opinion, knowing that the group isn't going to ostracize me because I brought that opinion. There's almost always authority structures, or there's sometimes just people with really strong personalities and or they're just way more extroverted. And a lot of times those folks can dominate. Sometimes the people, other folks who are in less positions of authority or have, are more introverted will actually just defer and wait because they know they're going to say their opinion. So we'll just wait to hear what they say and then it'll be safer or I'll just agree with it or I'll just go along with it. I was thinking about how the person in authority in a lot of churches is a teaching pastor uh, or maybe a teaching pastor and a few elders. And they're going to have certain instincts and think that maybe everybody feels that way too, because that's what we tend to think, that people experience the world the same way we do. A uh, teaching pastor is probably someone who really enjoys listening to lectures and reading books and very like knowledge and information-based type person, which that might not be as edifying to other types of people. But if that person's the person in authority who's calling the shots and not doing the generous listening that allows you to hear other people's experiences better. It's going to shape the culture in a way that might not be good for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. Those are super helpful. Cool. Well, Tyler, I love how practical you are. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. I'll let you go. And thank you for doing this. Now we're going to hear some of Justin Barrett's thoughts on the conversation you just listened to. Tyler Greenway. Justin Barrett was your, is one of your protégés, I feel like. Tyler was fantastic. Well, he still is. He's not dead yet. He's, <laughs> he's out there doing good stuff. Yeah, I remember when we interviewed Tyler for admission into the doctoral program at Fuller. And we asked him an integration kind of question. Fuller likes to talk a lot about integrating our faith with our scientific study and so we asked him a question about how does your Christian faith inform your approach to doing psychology or your motivations for doing psychology, something along those lines. I don't remember the exact question. What I do remember is the other interviewer and I thinking, wow, 
this guy's already knows more than some of our junior faculty people. He just crushed it. And we're like, okay, we've got to get this guy to study with us. He's so good. And we were absolutely right. We exercised really keen judgment in that moment. He was, he was fantastic. One of the things that your conversation with Tyler, I think nicely illustrated and the bit that I'd like to highlight is how Tyler noted that Lots of psychological scientists have started looking at topics that should matter to church leaders, should matter to various ministry leaders, people in the church around the idea of spiritual formation. We've got all of these psychologists in the last couple of decades who have started looking at things like patience, forgiveness, hope, gratitude, gratitude toward others, gratitude toward God self-control, all of these things that we hope that spiritual formation will bring about. And now the sciences are, are giving us sort of new tools and insights about what those processes look like, how they can be encouraged, how we can prepare people to better grow these character strengths and virtues. And yet we've got a problem. And that is that most bits of the church, I think, are still unaware that these resources exist or they're immediately suspicious even though most, not all, but a, a surprisingly large number of the scientists working in this space actually are believers. That's part of why they were motivated to go into these topics and study these things. So there's already some science that's just ripe for theological and ministry engagement here being developed that just sort of needs a push. We need to build that bridge. And so it was nice to hear Tyler's continuing motivations to do that and the work that he's been doing in the Fuller Youth Institute to do just that kind of work, to bring these scientific resources into the church and make them available to people who are investing in the encouragement of spiritual formation. Yeah, help create kind of a pipeline there. That's <laughs> I had, right. I had to like rag on kind of my own tradition where there's this I get the motivation trying to kind of the protecting the role of the Holy Spirit in all of this. But everyone has a way to do that. Like even if reflecting on the gospel, like sometimes that's said as if it's not a thing, like it's not a practice. So sometimes people in my tradition would like rag on, um, talk about spiritual practices or different practical steps to be like, you just need to think about Jesus. Well, how do I absorb the Christ likeness by reflecting on the gospel? Okay, well, that's still an action you're recommending. It doesn't happen unmediated in this lightning bolt way. Yeah, or even if it does, which we'll leave, we'll leave it open, that could happen. That's not the conventional way it happens. And if it were to your point, I totally, I know exactly what you're talking about. I've seen this too, the whole, well, we don't need your special tricks and techniques. I mean, that's almost like manipulating people or something like that. I'm like, well, okay, then. So pastors shouldn't receive any training whatsoever. Is that what you're saying? They should just show up and hope for the best. They shouldn't prepare because that could be manipulating. They should just like, well, well, we don't mean that. Like, okay, then what do you mean? Because you're absolutely right. We, the church, most of it acts like, no, no, there really are best practices for explaining scripture, for meditating on scripture, for worship, communal worship, at least, right? There's some better and worse ways to do it. Otherwise, we wouldn't invest so much in structuring it for learning about it for promoting certain ways we wouldn't fight over these things because well the holy spirit can use whatever 
So just get out of the way and let it happen. Just go wander in the woods and we don't act that way. Okay, then what is it about the scientifically informed ways that make you so uncomfortable? And I think there are probably answers there that are worth plumbing. Like, well, is this revealing that we think that every and all spiritual technique is somehow transparently in the pages of the Bible? And Uh those are the only ones that are allowed. Mm -hmm. Is, Is that what we're thinking? Because mm-hmm. I think if we start talking to our missionary friends and so forth who see the Holy Spirit working through other kinds of mechanisms that aren't in the Bible, for instance, we would go, okay, that can't be quite right. This is not exhaustive in that regard. We wouldn't expect to see radical deviations, maybe, but we don't expect that each and every possible spiritual formation technique is there. Why not? Because, well, we're living in different times and places, too, with you know, yeah, cultures. because even if you, yeah, even if you have a really, really high view of scripture and you want to stick to what's in there, we don't have like the same kind of wheat that was in the bread that Jesus ate or whatever the cultural conditions that like, oh, do we need to, how far do we take that? Do we need a building that looks like the building they worshiped in or, you exactly. know. Exactly. Are we using the same musical instruments? Exactly. Yeah. Are we all mm-hmm. supposed to worship wearing our linen ephod and not these other kinds of clothes? I mean, <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have not come across a church that actually lives into that fully, right? Right. That is primitivist in that sense. And like, okay, then. So you're picking and choosing, you're deciding which of these new technologies, let's call them what they are. Technologies are human-made things to bring about certain kinds of ends. And we have spiritual technologies, and there's nothing wrong with that. They should be biblically informed. Sure. I think, but they can't be sort of scientifically refined. Yeah. Yes, of course. We're not saying the Bible doesn't matter. It's not, it's part of the conversation, but we can't pretend that we're in the same cultural context using the same stuff. Yeah. It's got to be. And that's, I think, a beautiful thing, actually, about Christianity, the way that the spirit continues to work in different ways throughout time and through all kinds of cultural contexts, like you mentioned, missionary contexts. And even we see throughout the Bible, that's why the Old Testament just feels different than the New Testament, because the culture had totally changed. You have the influence of the Greco-Roman culture in the New Testament era. And yeah, things change. Yeah. And so fortunately, then the way I see it is that God has gifted us with these scientific ways of knowing that help us better discern what are the general principles that put us in a place that makes us more receptive to God meeting us and transforming us. And so let's not neglect those good gifts that he's given us. Let's use them appropriately. Let's care for them and let the sciences then of spiritual formation, of character and virtue development, of these specific kinds of, go ahead and call it aspects of the fruit of the spirit. But we've got science of these things now. Let's benefit from those. That doesn't mean we just Take them uncritically in sort of a naive kind of, yes, tell me what to do, oh, great science, but that we take them seriously as good gifts that we can put to good use. Yeah. Isn't that great? If you're like, oh, I've got this situation in my life where I think it's a time where God wants to grow up my virtue of patience. And you might have a lot of well-meaning friends at church who say, well, you got to do this or you got to do that. But, you know, maybe there's some practical tips that have been shown to really help people show perseverance or or patience in their lives or something like that absolutely yeah or tyler offers the example reach the forgiveness model i have worthington that was a really good particular example that was Um, a good example (laughs) that's pretty good 
Thanks for taking the time to do this. 